Merry Christmas, congregation. I'm so glad to see you guys here. It's really an incredibly beautiful view from this vantage point. It's surreal. It's surreally beautiful, truly. Um, so I'm Pastor Michael. And today, rather than uh, preach a Christmas sermon, I decided that we're going to do we're going to wrap up the Gospel of John. And today is going to be the last, the final sermon in this Gospel sermon, uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John. And I think it's a really significant moment because we're at the end of a journey that we began two and a half years ago. And I wanted to preach through the Gospel of John for several reasons. John is really a unique book in uh, the New Testament canon. It has the most extended, the longest uh, discussion on the Holy Spirit, the Upper Room Discourse. I really wanted to preach through it, and and I'm I, I, I'm still not satisfied <laughs> with uh, how far we've gone into it. It has some of the most uh, clearest and most explicit statements on the divinity of Jesus. In fact. In the centuries leading up to the Council of Nicaea, when the early church was debating the divine human nature of Jesus, the Gospel of John was the most cited book in the New Testament for that uh, discussion. Alongside of Romans, it has, I think, some of the most profound, some of the most powerful statements on the doctrine of uh, predestination. And so I wanted to teach on all these things, but in the end... I hope that the Gospel of John has brought you closer to Christ. I hope that it has given you a deeper faith, a fuller abiding, a greater obedience and love. And so we're going to read the final six verses of the Gospel according to John. If you could turn with me in your bulletins, I'll read to you. This is from John chapter 21, verses 20 to 25. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things And we know that his testimony is true. In other words, the Apostle John is the author of this gospel. And here's the final verse. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God. So I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to see that each disciple has their own story. Number two, we're going to see that Jesus will return. 
And then finally, we're going to close by looking at the greatness of Jesus. So first, each disciple has their own story. So we've been looking at the final resurrection story. And this is the third week now. And what happens is that um, Peter is walking with Jesus. And Jesus is instructing Peter. He's pouring into Peter. And it must have been a wonderful time. You know, this is what Jesus did for each of his disciples. And in this conversation, he commissions Peter. We saw this last week. He said, feed my sheep, watch over my sheep. And this is a really important moment in redemptive history because he's entrusting to Peter the leadership of the early church. And in this discussion, Jesus also says what it will cost Peter to follow him. You know, Jesus never hides the costliness of discipleship. And so Jesus says, Peter, one day your hand will be stretched out and you will die for my name. And according to church tradition, um, according to you know early church fathers like Tertullian and Origen, uh, Peter was in fact crucified at Rome. Some of the later traditions say that he was crucified upside down around the year AD 64. And so I want you to imagine this. You know, Peter is processing this and he's overwhelmed, right? He, he's going to take over this movement that Jesus has begun and Jesus has just told him he is going to die a martyr's death. And then Peter sees Jesus. I'm sorry. And then Peter sees John. And he says, Lord, what about him? What is going to happen to him? And Jesus' response is both, I think, so deeply reassuring, but it is also a sharp rebuke. And in verse 22, Jesus says, If it is my will that he remain... And Jesus here means that John remain alive, right? That John will continue living until I come. He's talking about his second coming. What is that to you? And actually, in the Greek, it's much more brusque. It's three short Greek words, ti pros se, which means what to you? What is that to you, Peter? Why is that important to you? You see, it's a rebuke. Jesus is rebuking Peter for this question. And so what is wrong with Peter's question? Because on one level, it's a really natural question. Peter is curious about John's fate. But implicit in the question is a comparison. Peter wants to measure his life against John's life. And you see... This is what we all do. How do you know if you're doing well? How do you know if your life is a success or if it's a failure? You look around and you compare your life to other people. And it's really second nature, right? We all do it. We all make comparisons. The problem, the problem is that it robs you of joy. The problem is that it works against your contentment. And actually, it's an accusation against God. God, 
why didn't you give me what other people have? You must not love me then. You must not be a good God. I think this is so interesting. This is the final word. This is the very last thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. And he's talking about the sin of covetousness in the church. The sin of jealousy and comparison that produces resentment and strife and division. You see, we forget Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he teaches us that the church is a body. It's like a human body, and the human body consists of many different body parts. And all the body parts are important. If you don't think you need one of your body parts, then go ahead and sever it, amputate it, see how that works out for you. But in fact, you need all of your body parts, all of your body members. That's, by the way, where church membership, the word, comes from. And all the different body parts are, they have different roles, which don't make them more important or less important. But there's this diversity that produces a wonderful unity. Or, to put it another way, we each have our part to play in the grand story that God is writing. One of my favorite um, book series is the Chronicles of Narnia. And the earlier this year, um, my boys and I, we finally finished all seven books, reading it uh, to my boys. And I just want to tell you, I felt this surge of happiness and sense of accomplishment. It's been one of my life goals. And I really commend it to all the parents. And one of the books that my boys and I really loved is The Horse and His Boy. And it's the story of these two children, um, Shasta and Aravis, and they're escaping from uh, slavery and captivity in Kellerman, and they're making their way to Narnia, the land of freedom. And along the way, they have all of these adventures. And when Shasta finally reaches, just as he's about to enter Narnia, he finally meets Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure of the stories. And they have this wonderful, wonderful conversation where it's one of the most moving scene, one of the most moving passages in the book where Aslan is explaining Shasta's life. And he's, he's telling Shasta he was there all along and the purposes of all of the hardships and all of the obstacles that Shasta experienced. And at one point Shasta asks Aslan, well, what about Aravis? Right, his traveling companion. And Aslan replies, listen to this, he says, Child, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story but their own. I think that there's so much wisdom here. You know, we only have access to our own story. We only know the journey of faith that we have been on. And we don't have the knowledge and we certainly don't have the wisdom to judge another life. And so Jesus is saying, don't worry about other people. Instead, in verse 22, he says, follow me. Just keep your eyes on me. 
and don't look at anyone else. I want you to know that if you can accept this, this is a wonderfully liberating word. Each of you has a unique story that God is writing with your life. And it's unfolding at the pace that he has chosen. And your job is not to mind the other stories, but your job is to do the best that you can with the resources that God has given you and to follow Christ with all of your strength, without complaints and with joy and gratitude. So that's the first point. All of us have a different story. Number two, Jesus will return. So if you read verse 23, John is clarifying this misunderstanding that had arose in the early church. And that misunderstanding is that John would not die. That Jesus would return within John's lifetime. And this actually connects to other parts of the New Testament where we see this eager expectation among believers about the imminent return of the Lord. We see this particularly in, the, in Paul's Thessalonian letters where Paul talks about how some of the early believers had stopped working because they were waiting for Jesus. Some of the um, believers were worried that Jesus had already come and that they had missed it. And I think this is a good opportunity to talk about the Bible's theology of the second coming, which is mentioned in the New Testament over 300 times. One in every 13 verses is about the second coming. A large percentage of Jesus' parables is in fact about his return, so that the New Testament is practically bursting at the seams with this sense of lively expectation. And I want to commend this to you. You know, I want the congregation of IGC to share this same sense of ardent expectation that we find in the early church that the Lord Jesus will come back, which Paul describes, I think, so beautifully in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to this. The blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I want to walk us through this doctrine and I want to give you a very basic primer. And I want to do this by answering four questions very briefly. These are four subpoints. The first question is this. Why does Jesus have to return? Right? Why is it necessary that he come back? And the answer is because his first coming was incomplete. You know, his first coming, which we're celebrating in this season of Advent and Christmas, his birth, his life, his ministry, all of that left undone much of the mission of the Messiah. And this is the reason why so many first century Jews refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Because if you look at the Old Testament, this figure of the Messiah, one of the, one of the principal attributes is that he would be a world conqueror. 
And let me just give you a, a flavor, a sense of this with a couple of verses in the Old Testament. So consider, for example, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is probably the, the paradigmatic messianic psalm. And in the psalm, God says to his Messiah, listen to this. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So that the Messiah, when he comes, he would reign over this kingdom, not just over the land of Israel, but his kingdom would stretch to the ends of the earth. It would be a worldwide reign and all the nations would bow in homage to the Messiah. Or consider Psalm 110, where God says again to his Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make, listen to this, your enemies your footstool. It's a really vivid image of the Messiah after he has vanquished his enemies He would sit on his throne and then he would rest his feet on the crushed bodies of his enemies. He would make the pagan nations his footstool. Because you see, the Messiah was supposed to solve the problem of evil and injustice in this world. And therefore, He was supposed to destroy the Romans, the evil empire. And he was supposed to liberate God's people from under their groaning oppression. And therefore, the Messiah was supposed to be a greater Moses, leading a new exodus, leading his people to a greater freedom. The Messiah was supposed to be a greater David, the greatest king in Israel's history, who would lead the people of God in victory against the pagan nations. But instead, Jesus of Nazareth comes and he claims the mantle of David. He is the son of David. But at the end of his short life, he perishes on a Roman cross. That was inconceivable in the Jewish mind. That that, that was like the exact opposite of what the Messiah was supposed to do. And so you have to understand that among Jesus' followers, the the pregnant question was, how can Jesus still be the Messiah? And the first part of the answer is the resurrection. We've we've looked at this uh, these past several weeks. The resurrection reversed the verdict of the cross. But the second part of the answer is, is Jesus' teachings. All throughout his ministry, he explained that the Messiah's coming would happen in two stages. In the first stage, the Messiah would come in weakness and in suffering, and he would die on a cross for the sins of the whole world. And then there would be a second stage where he would come again this time in power and in glory as a divine warrior to judge the earth. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to come. He's talking about his second coming. With his angels, okay, that's his army, in the glory of his Father, right? He's coming in power 
And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's judgment day. So that's the answer to the first question. Jesus has to return because he has to complete his work of redemption. So if this work is so important, if it's left, if it has been left undone, that's the second question. Why does Jesus delay? Why does he tarry in his return? Why has it taken so long? If you're keeping count, it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus told his followers that he would return. Why has so much time elapsed? And the answer the Bible gives us is so that the harvest of the nations might be brought into the church. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, and then the end will come. This age, Jesus is telling us, this present age that we are living in, is the age of evangelism and reaching the lost. Because in the age to come, there will be no more conversions. There will be no more repentance. And the wicked will be cast into the outer darkness, into eternal judgment. And therefore, we have only this momentary window of time. We have this precious period of time to carry out the work of the church, and then the king will return. That leads me to my third question. When will this happen? When will Jesus return? And, you know, this is the question that a lot of people spend most of their energies, but I think it is mostly misplaced. So when will Jesus return? Here's the answer. We don't know. But... He can come at any moment. This is one of the uh, reoccurring metaphors of the second coming, which is that it will be like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, Paul says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Think about how a thief comes into your house. If he should break into your house, he's not going to give you advance warning. He's not going to give you time to prepare. But he will come in the dead of night, swiftly and suddenly, without warning. Some of you, some believers will say, it's been 2,000 years. I don't think Jesus is going to return anytime soon. So I'm going to go about my life. And the Bible would say to you, Oh, foolish hearts. Oh, foolish hearts. Do you not understand that when Jesus speaks of his return, he is not just talking about the shortness of the time per se, but he is talking about the possibility that at any moment he will return. And therefore, we must remain ever vigilant, ever watchful, we must be like a sentry guard standing at the city walls, watching, scanning the horizon 
knowing that the invading army is on its way. He doesn't know when it will come, but he knows they're coming. That leads me to the fourth question. How? How do we wait? This is, in fact, the most important question. How do we wait? This is the theme of so many of Jesus' parables. For example, consider the parable of the of of the talents, which is in Matthew 25. Jesus tells a story of a master going away on a journey. And before the master leaves, he appoints three of his servants and he gives them each a sum of money according to their abilities. To one servant, he gives five talents. Talents, by the way, is just a large sum of money. To another servant, he gives two talents. And to the third servant, he gives one talent. And then he leaves. The servant with five talents immediately puts it to use. He works hard. He's so diligent so that by the time his master returns, he has doubled the money. The second servant does likewise. But the third servant, the servant with a single talent, he immediately buries the money. He does the safe thing. He sits on his hands and he does nothing. And then he goes about his own life. He attends to his own business affairs, oblivious to his master's return. And then in the story, the master comes back. And he immediately looks over the accounts of his servants. And to the first two servants, the master commends them. He says, well done, good and faithful servants. Come into the joy of your master. But to the third servant, the servant with a single talent who did nothing, he says, you wicked and lazy servant. And then, I think this is the most chilling of all, Jesus says, that third servant is cast into the outer darkness, which is Jesus' imagery for hell. I want you to know Church, I want you to listen to me. I want you to know that the purpose of your life is not to pursue your own interests. The purpose of your life is not just to build up your wealth and to save up money for vacations and holidays. So many of you are building your lives on sand. But the storm is coming. And you are oblivious to your danger. I want you to know that the days and the years of your life do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord Jesus. And so what will you do with the time that you have? What will you say to the Lord Jesus if he should return tomorrow? How will you account for your life? I want to warn you. 
I want to warn you against spiritual laziness and complacency. Are you being diligent in the things of God with the time that you have? I want to close by reading, close this section by reading from Titus 2 again. We began this whole section by reading from Titus 2.13, where Paul describes the second coming as the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want to read to you the two verses preceding that verse, which teaches us how to wait. How do we wait for his return? Do we all have to become missionaries? The answer is no. Though some of you, I think, should consider being missionaries. We'll talk about that later. But all of you, God has placed in your jobs, in your families, in your lives. And this is what you are to do. Listen to this. Titus 2, 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then here it is. Here's how you wait. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting. That's how we wait. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The last point is the greatness of Jesus. Look with me now to the final verse, the last verse in the Gospel of John, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I want you to know that this is not just a bit of rhetorical flourish. This is not just an author saying, you know, I could have gone on so much longer, which is true for any great subject. But when John says, there are not enough books in this world to contain Jesus, he means that literally. This can be said of no other human being. Because in the end, all of us, we are finite. We are limited in our creativity and energies. And there's only so much that we can do that is interesting and important. But Jesus is infinite. He is infinite in his majesty. He is infinite in his his glory and beauty. He is everlasting. And I think it's so interesting that this final statement in the Gospel of John is about the divinity of Jesus. It's about his eternal divine nature. And what John here is telling us is that all four Gospel books, and his is the last, are in the end incomplete. They are only the beginning and the introduction of the full story, which will go on forever. And so the Gospel of John has given us enough to believe in Jesus as the Christ, but it does not contain his fullness. It does not exhaust his wonder and his glory. And because Jesus is infinite, 
we will never tire. We will never stop being amazed at his manifold perfections. And a thousand years will pass in the new heavens and the new earth. And it will be as if we have just begun the story because we will never reach the end of who Jesus is because he is infinite. He is infinite in his goodness. He is infinite in his majesty. I want to close this sermon and I want to close this entire sermon series with a brief meditation on the portrait of Jesus given to us in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word of God through whom an infinite God condescended and revealed himself to finite human beings. He is the bread of life, the living water. He is the true and only source of spiritual life, and without him we would perish. He is the good shepherd who gathers together the lost sheep and watches over them. He is the light of the world, and into the darkness of this world he shines as truth and goodness. He is the true vine. See, you and I, we are branches. And we cannot bear fruit unless we abide in Him, unless we are united to Him in faith. He is the way, the truth, and the life. All other ways lead to death. But only if we walk in Him will we experience life that is truly life. He is the resurrection and the life. So that when we give our life to Him, though we should physically die, we will be raised to new and everlasting life. I want you to know, church, Jesus is not just a wonderful character in a book. He is not just a good moral teacher who gives us ethical principles for living. He is not just an important historical figure who started a movement that's still with us and still growing. I want you to know that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal God who came in human flesh, who lived among us. And because he so loved the world, because he so loved us, he laid down his life for us that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, what a gift the gospel of John is to us. And Lord, we confess how how callous our hearts are, how negligent our spirits are when it comes to this incredible gift of the life of Jesus so that he's not just some distant historical figure, but he's with us because we have the spirit so that we don't have to cling to him physically, as Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, 
but we have him vividly. He's alive. He's with us. If only we will open our hearts to him and abide in him in the Christian faith. And now we're going to come to the table and we pray that you would feed our souls. Be with us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.